In 2016, a German forester named Peter Wolben released a book entitled The Hidden Life of Trees. Now, he tells the story about his time managing this German forest, ultimately for the purpose of lumber. And to begin with, it was just a job for him, just something to help him make money. But as the years progressed, something strange began to happen. He stopped seeing these trees as a commodity and started seeing them as a spiritual mystery. Suddenly, they weren't passive lumber anymore, just waiting to be harvested, but they, in a strange way, became active teachers, revealing to him the wonder of life, and especially life together with others. Now, this is interesting. I I, I was kind of shocked when I first heard this, but the science of trees is growing astronomically, even in the 21st century. The way we understand uh, human, not just human life, but even plant and animal life is growing leaps and bounds. Wolben recounts hosting arboreal, which of course just means tree, hosting arboreal scientists in his forest once. And their research revolved around this groundbreaking science of trees' complex root systems and how they not only just sustain the tree that is attached to the roots, but indeed they sustain the entire woodlands. And that's why, for instance, uh, or for instance, rather, that you can see in some of these forests old trees that had been cut down maybe centuries ago, leaving only a stump. They don't have any leaves. There's nothing, uh, no way for them to use the process of photosynthesis to, to draw in nourishment, and yet they were still alive. And the reason was is because their roots were so intertwined with the roots of other trees that were bigger and older and living that even though they looked dead, they could be living too. And so imagine, if you will, a sapling that's only a few months old and it's, it's sprouting next to this big ancient oak tree. Now, if that sapling were by itself out in a field with no protection, no trees around it, it may survive, but it could also be the victim of a, a, a summer thunderstorm with all of its wind. It could also be covered up and buried by a winter blizzard with all of its snow. But next to this mature tree, this sapling suddenly has a chance for life. Because when the summer winds come, that big tree will block them. And when the winter snows fall, it won't get deep around the base of that tree. And because this little sapling only has shallow roots, it wouldn't survive by itself, but because it's connected to the deep and broad roots of this wizened old oak, it has a shot at a full and rich and mature life. Now I bring all this up this morning because I think this is the exact kind of spiritual mystery that Paul is revealing to the Colossians this morning. Because think about this. Paul has been around the block a few times. He is a wizened old oak tree that has deep roots in Christ Jesus. He's got a wide trunk, strong branches. And here's this little young sapling church that seems to be 
planted in the middle of nowhere with no other protection around them except for the, the sustenance that they get from ministers like Paul. And they're small and vulnerable. They have, they're full of life and potential, but there's a lot of dangers that await them. But the punishing storms of life and the blizzards of persecution have been borne by people like Paul, who's locked away in a jail cell and is still encouraging them. And while suffering is poured out on Paul, he can still nourish this little church with their shared roots together. I think this is really a marvelous depiction of what the Christian life looks like practically. See, to be a Christian is to kind of live like these trees that we might see in a German forest. Yes, we all may be individual species and we all may be in our own little locations. Some of us get more sun, some of us get more rain, some of us get more wind, some of us are on better soil, some of us are on rockier soil. But we aren't just individuals who live close by. What we are instead is an intricately connected and dependent superorganism living and flourishing together. Just like a, a forest, although there's individual trees in it and that some can be cut down by loggers or, or knocked over by tornadoes or burned down by wildfires, often the health of that forest is because it's all connected together. And so make no mistake, Paul uses the metaphor of the body of Christ also like we would use the metaphor of a forest. Because see, a body is not just made up of all hands or fingers or knees or toes or legs or just a bunch of eyes or mouths or ears. Everything needs to be different and working in tandem together. And so when Paul describes the church as the body of Jesus Christ, we know that Jesus being the head means He's the source. He's the authority. He's the one that leads and guides the, the church through life. But our individual life is completely bound up in His ruling over all of reality, spiritual and physical. But also, our life is also made stronger and better and happier because we're all members of Christ's body together. And the greatest mystery of all that Paul expresses this morning is that even in our suffering, even when one of us is hurting, one of us is in misery, or maybe all of us are suffering, we can flourish together in Jesus still. Now last week, Paul gave us this beautiful poem about Jesus as our Creator and as our Redeemer. And as our Lord and King, He suffered and died on the cross to make spiritual strangers like us now belong in His kingdom. But now Paul is shifting our attention away from, from that to something totally unexpected. We've gone from the spiritual high of belonging to the kingdom of God, and now he's showing us the unpleasant reality of what it means to suffer for the king. 
Now it's true that every sinner and stranger who comes to King Jesus finds love and life, finds forgiveness and a future. But often our salvation only becomes clear to us. It only becomes so near to us when we live a life of suffering. Now, at first blush, this doesn't sound like good news, does it? But here's the beauty of addressing suffering clearly and honestly as Christians. Because even in the most disastrous circumstances of life, we can know with great confidence that precisely in the deepest and darkest valleys through which we go, Jesus meets us there, sustains us there, and mysteriously even suffers with us there. So let's look at the first part of our passage this morning. Colossians 1, 24-29. Now right off the bat, Paul talks in a way that probably seems weird to us as Americans. Because he's rejoicing in suffering. He's celebrating his suffering. Meanwhile, our entire way of life here is dominated by advertising products that will help us not only avoid the painful moments in life, but even the mundane and boring ones as well. Are you tired of standing in line at the grocery store? Well, shop online and get someone to deliver it to your home. Do you hate waiting in the, the, the waiting room of a doctor's office? Well, you can video chat with a real doctor right from your phone in your living room. Everything that's geared at us today is about eliminating every boredom and inconvenience. There's a solution for all of it. That's our way of life. So how in the world do we deal with Paul dropping this kind of a bombshell on us in verse 24. Not only is he celebrating his suffering, celebrating, rejoicing in it, but he says he's necessarily going through it to complete something that's lacking in Christ's. Now, if there's alarm bells sounding in your head right now, good, that means you're paying attention. First of all, how could Paul be so positive about suffering. Everything, like we've said, in our culture is about avoiding any suffering. We don't want to talk about death or sickness or misery. We'll put on another episode or listen to something that distracts us from it. We'll spend our money online, shopping, doing something, whatever just pushes away the reality of suffering and death from us. But Paul speaks positively even about his suffering. And even stranger, and maybe more scandalous to us than that, how could he possibly say that he's completing something that Jesus didn't? What does that mean? How could Paul say that? Well, let's look at these two ideas one at a time. First, let's look at this idea, rejoicing or celebrating in suffering. Now, is Paul some kind of a spiritual masochist? Is he somebody that just thinks that just suffering is an is a, is a end unto itself, that there's just something noble about pain and misery? Well, no. I don't think that's what 
Paul's communicating. I don't think he thinks that suffering is morally or spiritually a better thing in and of itself. But he does see suffering as a sign, as a means of being with Jesus in a very real way. So Paul can rejoice in suffering because it connects him to the life of Jesus in a way that only suffering could. So, for instance, in Acts 9, after Paul first encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he's, he's blinded by his glory, Jesus then also appears to a man who's a Christian named Ananias and tells Ananias that Paul would suffer for Jesus' sake. That's right out of the gate for the Christian life. Jesus shows up, Paul is blinded, he's disoriented, and then he's told he would suffer. That's how he begins his Christian experience. That's pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty sobering thing. I know most people when they share their testimony, it's, you know, oh, I, when I was, was at my lowest, and when I felt like nobody loved me, and when I could see that I was a sinner, it's the, that the gospel was so revealed to me. And amen, and that's wonderful. <laughs> but poor Paul, right out of the gate, is told, you're going to do what I call you to do, and you're going to suffer for it, Paul. But by sharing in the life of Jesus, by sharing in the joy and the agony of Jesus, he finds that he is connected inextricably to his Savior. No light can pass between Paul and Jesus now because their life, like those trees and those roots, are bound together. That's why Paul tells us so starkly in Philippians 3, verses 7-10, through but everything that was a gain to me, everything, I've considered that to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. My safety, my money, my status as a religious leader, my, uh, my long life, my health, All these things, I consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul's goal is to know the resurrection and to fellowship with Jesus in the sufferings of Jesus. That to him is greater than anything this world can offer him. Paul is suffering prison chains, folks. He could be enjoying his freedom. Paul's clearly a brilliant guy. He was a well-respected Pharisee in his day. He could be living it up. But he suffered beatings and hunger and thirst and nakedness and homelessness and aches and pains so that he could share the love and goodness of Jesus. 
to every part of the known world. And through it all, this is the amazing thing, Jesus is with him, fellowshipping in those sufferings. When we become Christians, we become united to Jesus in this mysterious way. Our lives become so intertwined with him and with each other that we are never alone again. Even when we feel despair, even when we're sicker than we've ever been, we're poorer than we've ever been, where we feel as sinful as we've ever been, we are never alone in that suffering. We belong to Christ. And consequently, we belong to Christ's people. So when we serve Jesus, even in our suffering, We serve and suffer for one another as well. And our hurting, our sorrow, is never wasted because Jesus hurts and sorrows with it through it all. That's why Paul can celebrate and rejoice in his suffering. It means that he is with Jesus in a real and powerful way. And we can be too in those moments. But Paul also says something else that seems strange to us. He says that through his own body's afflictions, he is filling up what's lacking in Jesus' bodily afflictions. Now that's just startling to hear. It sounds like Paul thinks he's completing the work of Christ. But what is Paul actually saying here? Certainly he knows better. And yes, he does know better. It sounds to us when we first read that like Paul thinks that Jesus quite didn't get the job done in his life or his death, that maybe the cross and his his anguish suffering there wasn't sufficient for us. But what Paul is actually communicating is just doubling down on this first section where he talks about that he's being united with Christ in his suffering. Because what he means is that because he's so inextricably connected to the life of Jesus now, that he's continuing the suffering of Jesus by being part of Jesus' body and being on Jesus' mission with Jesus' people, namely the, namely the church. So, when we enter into the Christian life, when we are joined to Jesus by being a part of his body, again, which is the church, we continue on in the suffering that He began for us. In a mysterious way, we enter into that. And because Paul is now connected to Jesus in this mysterious way, as he suffers mysteriously, even Jesus Himself continues to suffer for us. I've said this quote before, and it amazes me every time I think about it, but Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and theologian, I can't imagine being... Two things at once. A a math guy and a theology guy. That just seems like those two worlds never meet. Humanities and STEM. Those just very different worlds. But he says one of the most profound things. He says, until the end of the world, Jesus will be in agony. And he's in agony because his body on earth is suffering. And while his body on earth is suffering, 
Jesus feels the weight of that, even in glory. Even in His glorified, exalted state, Jesus cannot, cannot forget about us. His life and ours are so bound together that when we are at our most sorrowful, when we've done all we could to serve Him and have fallen short, He feels the weight of that with us. When we suffer in real ways for the sake of the Gospel, we find that Jesus is suffering alongside of us. We are never, never alone, even in our hardest, most miserable days, because God in the flesh is with us still. What's even more amazing than that, according to verses 25-27, through God actually chooses to reveal Himself. He reveals the riches and treasures and blessings of His life precisely through the means of suffering. God shows us His glory when our days are at their hardest and loneliest and most painful. And Paul says this is what animates him. This is what gives him purpose as a minister of the Gospel to keep on going. It's to share God's eternal mystery and unknowable wisdom. The mystery and wisdom of Jesus Christ for people like us. All the things our society tells us are the end and the goal of our longings. Whether it's wealth, or romance, or family, or power, or fame, or pleasure, or health. All of these things, all they merely point us to is the greater reality of Jesus, who Paul calls the true and real hope of glory. Paul even argues that suffering with and for Jesus is more meaningful than anything, anything that we could find in this creation. Now that seems like foolishness to most of our world. That we would elect to suffer instead of being comfortable and, and, and happy and well off with no problems. And you can certainly understand why. Because even when we're Christians, even when we believe this to be true in our guts, we think this is real. This is the truest thing we've ever heard. Even when we believe that, it's hard to trust God in the midst of our suffering. It's hard to trust that any of this can mean anything good. It's easier to believe that God loves us more when things are going well. That's a mistake that the Israelites make a lot in their history. As we've been talking about, as we've been going through the book of Amos on Sunday nights, the Israelites think when their economy is great and their military is powerful and they have everything they want that God is pleased with them. But we find out in reality that is when they're the furthest from God. Is when they're relying on their own strength and power and, and using it to put people down and, 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 and worship themselves that's when they're the furthest from God. And sometimes in the Christian life, I think we need to consider when we're in our deepest moments of agony, this is an invitation for us to be the closest to the Lord we've ever been. The truth we find in the Bible is that sometimes when our misery is most acute, 
that is exactly the place where God works in us the most profoundly to reveal His glory and do the most good for us. Folks, if you hear and believe this truth this morning, you can rejoice in it. Because it means that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you an ageless mystery, an eternal truth that He hasn't revealed to the smartest scientists, the wisest philosophers, the richest CEOs, and the most powerful politicians. God has revealed this truth to Maranatha Baptist Church. God shares the riches of His glory only with His sinners made saints. Not perfect people, and oftentimes not even the most moral or wise or decent or talented or useful or interesting at all. But the ones that He loves and calls out of the darkness of a selfish, meaningless existence and into the kingdom of His eternal light and belonging. If you know Christ, if you know Him alone, if you know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, you know a greater truth, a greater knowledge, and a greater mystery and wisdom than the world's most brilliant and powerful people. But this poses a question for all of us who believe in this Jesus. What will we do with this knowledge? Do we just sit on our hands and and wait for Him to come back and, and to judge the world? No. We live like Paul lives. We follow his lead in verses 28 and 29. When we have had this mystery and this wisdom revealed to us, we in turn proclaim it to one another. We live a life that shows we believe this to be the most true thing. Not not what the banks tell us. Not what Capitol Hill tells us. Not what Hollywood or Nashville or anything else tells us. We proclaim the wisdom that only Golgotha and the throne of Christ tell us. We teach and tell everyone in our life. We love everyone so they can grow and mature in Christ along with us. Going from little saplings to these great, wizened, old trees with roots that have gone deep, that have lived through many thunderstorms, that have lived through many blizzards, that have suffered many things for Jesus and whose life is richer and fuller for it. Any good forester will tell you that the best forests are the ones that have the most biodiversity, meaning the most differences in the kind of trees and vegetation and, and animal life and even funguses and all these different things. Having different trees that bear good but different kinds of fruit is the ideal forest. 
And just like a functioning human body needs to have a diversity of parts in order to function properly in the way it's supposed to, so is the church supposed to be like a human body? Is it supposed to be like a forest? So here's the thing. We've got a small congregation here, but we've got a lot of different kinds of people in this small congregation. And maybe you look at your life and see that you're a cherry tree, or an apple tree, or an orange tree. Well, here's my question for you, church. How can you use your unique fruit to make a rich meal together with the rest of your church to bless and feed everyone around you? See, everybody's a little bit different here, but those differences are a good thing because Christ works through this manifold of diversity. You heard in our prayer from Psalm 104 this morning, uh, there's all sorts of different kind of animals and, 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 and topographies and, and plants and, and ecosystems, and God is sovereign and presides over all of it. All of it reveals His glory. So my question to you, church, as you grow intertwined with Jesus and one another, how is God uniquely calling you to serve this congregation and your community through those doors? That's not a question that your pastor can answer for you. That's a question that only the Spirit can answer for you. There's only one of you in this church, and you belong here. So how has God forgiven you of your sins in order for you to love and toil and struggle with and for God's people? with all the energy He gives you? Where will you use the the spiritual freedom that you have in Christ to bloom and blossom even as you're suffering and serving? I want to challenge you to think deeply about that this morning. Where has this truth that God has called you even in your hardest days to flourish in Him, where where in your life might that be a blessing to your family and your friends and even your enemies in your life. Continue to think about that as as we look at these next and last three verses, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is asking all Christians to consider this kind of thinking. It's why he says that he's willing to suffer for churches and Colossae and Laodicea, places he's never even been before. And if I might be so bold, suffering even for a church in Lilburn, Georgia, nearly 2,000 years later. Paul wants all Christians to know, here or there, then or now, that he's willing to face intense struggle, having never met any of us face to face, so that we'd all be encouraged to trust and believe the worthiness of this Gospel for us. That's how he's using his suffering, even throughout the years, to sustain us when our suffering comes. Paul believes that his suffering will not only encourage the uh, the church in Colossae, but us, that the good news is true, but it will actually transform us together with him. It will shape us in love. And that's the miraculous thing about serving Jesus. When people pour their blood, sweat, and tears into loving the Lord, 
that produces fruit not only here, but far into the future. Jesus is so good and powerful and true that He carries our, us and our suffering not only now, but on into the future. And He makes us into a, a kind of people that, that show love and affection and care for one another. Suffering with and for Jesus means that the, even the most prickly of us, even the most delicate of us, are shown to be God's hand-picked treasures to be loved and cherished. It's amazing. Even when we're at our worst, the story of Jesus gives a place for us to belong and to heal. It gives us a place that we can be addressed not as a foe, but as a friend and a forgiven family member. When we live this kind of life together, a life with Jesus as the absolute center and supreme of our reality, all our bad days of suffering are shot through with hope. And all our good days of love serve as a proof that the hope on those bad days is not wasted. When we live this kind of Christian life together, we're only beginning to skim the surface of God's infinite ocean of riches and mysteries for us. And Jesus alone, all the hidden wisdom, Paul tells us, of God is revealed and all the longing of our human heart is fulfilled. Paul wants us to get to know this Jesus. And even in our suffering, and the mystery of that, to experience His vast and unending treasures. See, church, if, we, if, if the glory of Jesus as fully God and yet fully man does anything for us, if it's truly Israel's hope and the church's consolation, if we believe that God is totally just and yet also completely merciful, if we believe that He was humiliated on a cross and yet exalted to a throne, then the mystery of our suffering, why it is, when it's happening, for what purpose, all of that will one day be turned into everlasting joy with one another and with Him forever. Let's pray. Father, we don't always understand why we hurt or why we suffer. But we know that Jesus is always with us. That he, that he hurt and suffered for us first. So help us by Your Spirit's power to trust in Him and Him alone that the riches and treasures and mysteries and wisdom of His life and Your life might be revealed to us and in us. For it's in Jesus' name alone that we now pray. Amen.